0: Welcome to episode 5 of The Black Goat. Today on our episode, Spring Break, appealing editorial decisions, and is excellence a meaningful or empty concept and what should we do about it? Hi everyone, this is episode five of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me as always are my co-hosts Alexa Tullett. Hi Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Sanjay. So as we're recording this right now, it is spring break for some people and about to be spring break for others. So what are what are we all gonna do with all of that time we get on our break? Because, you know, academics don't work over breaks, right? That's what break means.
1: I'm I'm... going to Rome and I'm going to be making a ton of editorial decisions in Rome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of embarrassed that we're having this conversation now because I feel like if you had asked me in other years, I would have been able to give like a hardworking sounding answer like, oh, spring break is like a great time for me to catch up. And it's so nice to be able to just work and focus on that and not like be distracted by meetings and teaching and blah, blah, blah. Um, But my spring break just passed. Mm And I did very little work, and I traveled a bunch. Um, oh, you're so really you're totally. <laughs> you're, <laughs> this
0: is this is like you're you're this is like some kind of stereotype threat thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're you're actually fulfilling the stereotype of academics being lazy over uh, over breaks. I
2: know um, it's not really me. This is an exception.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm. Uh, um, so, uh, this is my 10th wedding anniversary, and so we're, we're going on a trip back to Palm Springs where we got married. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was just, uh, we just gave the final in my big intro to psych class this morning. And I was, and then we had a big thing going on with this data collection, and so I was telling my grad students that TA for me and that, that uh, do research with me. I was like, I will have my laptop. You can reach me. And I was just saying, oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be in Palm Springs with my family, watching them swim in the pool while I sit there on my laptop uh, <laughs> answering great appeals from undergrads.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, you're making me
1: feel really bad. <laughs> so I'm going to a conference first, which means that like everything's going to get backed up, like email and editing and so on. And then my spring break is right after the conference, and I'm going to Rome. And I'm seriously like, I'm so excited. I'm going to get to edit from Rome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be writing decision letters, but I'm going to
2: be in Rome.
0: Uh, such a sad life we really.
2: You can look at the Colosseum yeah. while you make decisions.
1: Yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah so uh in other things going on right now and and i i I feel like i'm the one so we haven't released any of our episodes yet uh we're gonna do that very soon i'm sure and i I feel like I've been the one we won't i won't bore any of our listeners with why, but I feel like I've been the one holding that up um but uh maybe we'll release this one soon so I can talk about uh things that are actually going on right now um uh the new i i don't know how many people are following the whole Brian Wansink food and brand lab saga at Cornell. I think we've talked about it previously. Um, But uh, there was a new article that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education this weekend, uh, where he basically said that he was refusing to release data that some people were trying to get to verify his findings because he thought they'd be critical. Um, And then a you know, more stuff coming out about how... So, like, the earlier stuff was about how maybe he was p-hacking and, and you know, and people were like, well, everybody used to do that and, and maybe he's just a little bit behind. And, you know, but now there's stuff about him, like, publishing multiple papers on the same data set, same results. And anyway, it's... The whole thing is unfolding. It's kind of hard to watch as a, you know, as a as an academic, like you know, you don't, you don't want to see this happen to somebody. But it, it's generated a lot of really interesting discussion online um, about sort of practices that are being revealed out of this lab or suspected and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, one thing that I thought was really interesting about it was, like, I only briefly skimmed the discussion, but the, some people expressing incredulity at the idea that someone hasn't heard of p-hacking and saying right. that that can't be possible or even if it's true it's not okay like it's not a defense in this day and age right
0: but yeah that was in the chronicle article he said i i had not heard of p-hacking until you know a couple months ago when somebody sort of accused him of it
1: yeah So I do find that surprising, but I also find it kind of entertaining that some people think that's literally impossible because I do have friends who are, like, over 55. (laughs) and um, Yeah, some of them, there's so much they don't know about and even very, very well-connected, very, you know, people who you think of as, like, having positions where they know what's going on, they have their finger on the pulse of things. But that's a different world than the online world where a lot of the p-hacking discussions are happening.
0: I, know, I I completely believe somebody that's not active on Twitter and Facebook could not know about this. Like I, I think if, if you're <laughs> if you're part of these discussions, it's like it feels like it's been the air we've been breathing for the last five years. But like I don't know. And I, I when I talk to yeah, colleagues, especially, you know, um, older than me and they're a lot of them they don't know at all or all they know is like, you know, uh there was this thing and and, you know, uh, somebody wrote a column in the observer and it sounds like people are being jerks and you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. uh um not really following the whole discussion.
2: I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard to accuse somebody of being in the wrong because they don't know about something. Um, but it seems hard to avoid. Like there have been special issues in most journals. There are um, panels on replicability at most conferences. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of things happen on Facebook and Twitter, but do you, I'm curious whether somebody could be could not know what P hacking was for instance, um just by chance or whether there's like some willful willful ignorance going on there.
1: Yeah. And there's also the issue of even if it's not willful ignorance, you, there's still some standard where you could say well they have an obligation to educate themselves and to keep someone said this I think on PsychMap that like if you're getting a ton of grant money and you're testifying before Congress and things like that, that maybe you should also be checking in on what's happening with the latest research methods developments or publishing standards in your field.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's there's been a lot in social psychology, and I, I do I don't want to get into what Wansink knows or doesn't know, but you know, my my general sense is like the there are some disciplines where there's been a lot of discussion and others where there's been not much. So you know when I talk to I, I have some colleagues in developmental and clinical who are very aware of these issues but what they tell me is they feel like they're the right now they're where people in social psychology were five years ago like they're the you know they're starting the people that I talk to are like yeah I've heard about this but you know it's not part of the discussion in my sub sub field yet so yeah it is it is interesting right and it it sort of raises I think it raises some interesting questions like you said of how How much we're supposed to be sort of like keeping up with, uh, you know, sort of these larger debates and, and how much we should be just sort of generally following trends or issues in the sciences broadly versus kind of, you know, narrowly laser focused on our labs and our research programs.
2: Yeah, I'm, I feel a lot more forgiving of people who are outside of, and I don't know how far this should extend, but outside of social psychology. Like, as soon as you get outside of social and personality psych, I'm like, I have no idea what my expectations are for um, how aware of pe- people should be about p-hacking or um, replicability or anything like that. Um, yeah. But I think that, yeah, I think that part of that is because within social and personality psychology, um, I have a general sense of what, people are exposed to right so i mean if you submitted a paper to psych science that works differently now than it did five years ago um Mm -hmm. so it seems harder to it seems like it would require more effort to be unaware of what was going on in social and personality psych yeah other fields i mean yeah i just have no idea i have no idea what um what the discussions are like and how how much people are exposed to those ideas
1: yeah, it's kind of interesting because we all work in departments where we, you know, there's multiple areas. So most psychology departments with, say, more than 10 or 15 faculty, the odds are that there's at least one or two people that have heard about this because they're in social personality psych. But it's kind of interesting that that doesn't translate into us assuming or expecting that people, that their colleagues have heard of it, right? So it doesn't, yeah. the like, transmission of information is not, even though we, we work in the same hallway, that information doesn't necessarily get transmitted. Yeah. yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah, I mean I, you know, I run a methods brown bag here at the U of O and I think that the main way that my colleagues like if I say something the main way it gets to one of my colleagues is if their grad students go to the methods brown mm-hmm. bag, you know, like I'm not starting up conversations, you know, hey, have you, you know, so and so, have you heard about p hacking or whatever? Um, and if I wasn't doing that, I don't think I would be you know connecting with uh with my colleagues as much I'm sort of you know infecting the impressionable minds of their graduate students and getting to them that way
1: that's what everyone is. everyone's worst fear is that that's what yes. we're doing pass the <laughs> hemlock Sanjay <Yes. laughs> all
0: right. well should we uh should we have got a uh we've got a letter today another letter so uh should we should we read that should we talk about our letter of the week yes, or letter of the whatever well letter of me. the episode all right Alexa do you want to read us the letter
2: I do. Um, Dear the black goat, I recently received an editorial decision on a manuscript I submitted, and the editor rejected the paper, in large part based on one reviewer's comments. This reviewer made a factual error in their assessment of my manuscript. In this case, would it be okay to email the editor and point out this factual error? Is it ever okay to appeal an editor's decision? If so, um, and if it would be reasonable to do it in that case, how should I go about doing that? What are the do's and don'ts of asking an author... um, or an editor to reconsider their decision. Anonymous.
0: So, yeah, it's such an interesting thing. So, I mean, I don't know what... I, I really want to hear, Samin, what you think, since you've got the most editorial experience of all of us. I know for me, like, I just used to assume, like, it's final. And, and and the further along I've gotten, you hear stories about people like, yeah, I got that paper in by, like, arguing with the editor. And I remember I when I would first hear those stories, I would be like, holy shit, you can do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but... This is a thing that people do, right?
1: Not that much, actually. So I don't know, at least in my experience on the other side of it, I think when I was an author and I heard about people doing that, I started to get the impression that, oh my God, everyone else is doing this and I'm the only one who's not. But then now that I've been in the position where I'm very likely to see those things if they're happening, it's actually pretty rare. I would say that in my experience, it's definitely less than one in a hundred. Um and of the times that I've received that kind of appeal, at least half the time it's something like this where there is a factual error. Like the editor cited a point usually that a reviewer made saying you did this and you shouldn't have done it and then actually they didn't do that and either it wasn't clear in their manuscript and, or it was and the, the editor and reviewer misread it. Um, so I, I tend to see a pretty bright line between cases where the basis of the editorial decision was wrong and that might have been the editor's fault or it might have been... The way the author wrote it wasn't clear. In those cases, I think it's totally appropriate to appeal the decision, or at least at least try, right? At least point that out and see if it makes a difference. Versus cases where it really is a matter of opinion or values or something like that, where the editor says, "I don't think this is good enough," and you say, "No, no, no, but it is good enough." <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> that's nice, but the editor already said they don't think it's good enough, so you don't you're not bringing new information to bear. Um, and then there's another. I guess the third category would be like, oh, we actually have new data now. Would it be okay if we resubmit with the new data? I think that's also a case where it's often very reasonable to ask that.
0: Yeah. So I mean, this this letter is like one factual thing, uh, um, uh, which presumably the editor sort of cited. Um, and so you, yeah. I mean, that's that's my sense too. You know, having less experience from the editor's chair, but like, if it's sort of clear that a big part of the decision hinged on that. To me, that seems reasonable. But like, what, what do you do when it's, you know, because a lot of times decisions are like, there's a whole bunch of issues and yeah. kind of, so it's not a like, I just don't think this is important values opinion thing. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a it's a scientific assessment, but it's like, well, there was this and there's this and there's this. And so you sort of, you're making an aggregate decision. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. What, what do you think of that?
1: I have such mixed feelings about it. So on one hand, I think it's absolutely fair to have a dialogue that's part of the scientific process. And if you want to say to the editor, hey, this one point was actually wrong, we did do this the right way, the way you said we should do it is the way we did it, does that make a difference? Like, do you, would you be willing to reconsider? I think we should live in a world where that's okay. Like, we should have those lines of communication open. On the other hand, I also think that it's easy for authors to underestimate how much additional work that creates for editors, and that if people were doing that all the time, it would become Unmanageable to be an editor. So when, when I do get an appeal, it's so much work because I want to make sure to really carefully evaluate everything. And if, if I made a mistake, I want to be very open to that possibility. I have reversed decisions before in cases where I did make a mistake or the reviewers made a mistake or, or again, sometimes it just wasn't clear. And now that I have the extra information, that changes things. So because I take that so seriously, I think many editors do take it really seriously. If you're saying we might've made a mistake... I don't want to get defensive. I don't want to brush it off. Like I want to investigate. So that's asking us to do a lot of work and you know given the number of decisions we make a year, if if even 5% of people did this, it would add to our workload a lot. So I don't think it should be taken lightly, but I also don't think that door should be closed. And then another factor that comes into it is who's likely to appeal and I've in talking to my friends who also are editors, we've notice a trend and it. it would be interesting to assess this empirically because this is just based on our impressions that there's demographic differences in who's likely to appeal decisions and so that makes us a little bit uncomfortable about that like what about all the people that just didn't think that it was okay to ask and so you're giving preferential treatment to the people who have the guts or the entitlement to ask um, yeah, this reminds me of are, like are the... You, are,
0: are, are you talking about men, I mean, you... <laughs> <laughs> Let's, let's not beat around men the bush. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to say that for me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: this reminds me of the dilemma that you're sort of faced with as a teacher when students come to you with, you know, questions about their grades or questions about, like, whether they can have extra credit opportunity and things like that, and over time... Um, I have been convinced that the most fair way to respond to those things is to not consider them because of, yeah, because of the differences between the people who come to you with those um, those inquiries and the people who don't. Um, at the same time, on the other side of the asking editors to reconsider things, I've asked editors to reconsider things before for probably not very good reasons. Um, and I think, that, God I think damn this it is <laughs>
0: So much for your theory, Samine. <laughs> well, she's white, so it's okay.
1: <laughs> Men or white
2: people—the worst is a combination. Um, so, uh, but I think so. If I think about the um, the question about do's and don'ts, I think that when I was in graduate school, and I would have considered a time when um, when it would be okay to uh, inquire about an editor's decision. I think some of that, uh, confusion about what's appropriate comes just from sort of like form wording that I was like not familiar with in graduate school. Um, so like things like saying, Oh, it just doesn't like meet the threshold for like this particular journal or, Oh, maybe if you like ran another study, then, you know, it would meet this bar, but you don't have that study right now. Or like Editors have ways of making things seem like you did a pretty good job, but you just sort of missed it. And I think that that is, like, for for somebody who's inexperienced, that sort of encourages, you know, someone to be like, okay, but, like, if you just think about it this way, Mm -hmm. then it's basically, like, basically there, right? You know? And I think that students have that same reaction, too, when they're talking to professors. Like, uh, if they get a question wrong on an exam and they're like, yeah, but, you know, this... Um, alternative answer seems like just as plausible and here's my reasoning and the professor is like tempted to just be like no you're wrong i know and you don't <laughs> um but usually people don't say that directly right you
0: don't
1: <laughs>
2: it also means that it directly yeah
1: that reminds me of another, another thing. This was actually advice that Bobby Spellman gave one time when I was on editor's panel and this question came up. And one point she raised, which I think is absolutely 100% true, is if you do appeal a decision, whatever response you get from the editor, do not appeal that response. <laughs> so <laughs> if you ask, would you reconsider, the editor says no, you say, okay, thank you very much, goodbye. Yeah. Like, don't push it further than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I mean this is also interesting, right? Like the I, I think that the teaching analogy is a really interesting one, and it, it I mean, it's just it's uh, you know, to, is this what economists call an agency problem or something? I don't know. Anyway, you know, the idea that like from you know from the author's perspective or in the teaching example, from the student's perspective, it's like there's no harm in asking, you right. know, they'll, they'll or they'll feel like the cost is very low, so they'll just ask. And, you know, the editor has to, if the editor cares about fairness, which they should, they have to think about, like, what if I reproduce this process over everybody that it could possibly apply to? Like, is it fair to only do this for people who ask? Is it fair to, is it efficient or does it make a workable system if I reconsider my decisions? Um, But yeah, it it seems at least coming back to the letter, like a factual error that was If it was cited as a reason for the decision and it seemed like a pretty substantial part of it, it sounds like I think we all kind of think, yeah, you know, just, and and in a nice way, just say, like, your decision cited this, we did this, would you reconsider? Not like, Mm -hmm. you know, reviewer three is a fucking moron, and so are you for not noticing.
1: Yeah, if you find yourself saying, and also, and also, and also, (laughs) then that's probably a sign that you're, like, trying to win by, like, argumentation instead of presenting new information that might actually. Make a and another thing. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, cool. I think we. Uh, um I feel like we've like pounded a nail on that one. Um, or what's the, that's the wrong, that's, that's like a coffin metaphor. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, we knocked it out of the park. That's
0: what there we go. We, we not, did we, you know, uh, if not, if uh, to whoever wrote the letter, feel free to appeal our answer um, letters at the dot uh, If you would like a, a new answer, um, uh, although we told you to do it. So that's probably what you were looking for. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's uh, let's talk about our our main topic for the day. Um, so uh, there was this really interesting article that came out uh, fairly recently called Excellence R Us, University Research and the Fetishization of Excellence um, by Samuel Moore, Cameron Nalon, Martin Paul Eve, Daniel Paul O'Donnell, and Damian Pattinson at various institutions. There's kind of a funny author note about like... The process they came up with for their author order—it was random—but they have a, you know, they went through all the iterations of how they didn't do it. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's taking on this idea. I, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I hear the word excellence bandied about constantly by the president and senior administrators of my university. Like, you know, we must. Every decision must be driven by excellence, and and this is sort of really interesting paper taking on that concept, taking on what it means, um, and so we thought it would be fun to, to discuss the paper and also just this broader kind of dialogue around excellence in the academy. Um,
1: so actually, yeah. I, I, heard, I came across the paper because I started following Cameron <coughs> Nalon on Twitter after he came to give a talk here. So we have a data science group that's very focused on reproducibility and stuff, and they invited him, and he gave a talk called Excellence is Bullshit. Um, which I, I'm i guessing was their preferred title for the paper, but it didn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a really cool talk. And, yeah, he, he like, had excerpts from a bunch of university mission statements and society mission statements, and, and since I saw the talk, I keep seeing it everywhere. And then I saw it, so SPSP a couple weeks ago sent around an email to all of its members asking for feedback on, like, a mission statement and value statement and goals and so on, which I mostly really liked, and I had, you know, I thought it was really well written and really clear, But there was, like, a couple bullet points along the way that had to do with, like, rewarding outstanding researchers or outstanding research and stuff like that. And I, based on this paper and and the talk that I heard, made a comment about how, like, really is is the main goal or is, like, one of the main goals of the society to reward outstanding researchers? Like, are we in the business of distinguishing the top 2% from everyone else or are we really more focused on, like, rewarding everyone who's doing solid work above a certain threshold? And I got that idea from these guys.
0: Yeah, so so it kind of it starts with this sort of almost linguistic analysis of you know the word excellence and the way it's used. I mean, I'm I'm no philosopher. They're quoting or talking about Wittgenstein, which uh, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the limits of what I know about Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, Stein. I don't. know, Anyway. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just kick me out of the academy now. I can't say his name. Um, uh, yeah, but they're they're talking about this sort of idea that it's like it's this term. It's used across different disciplines. It's used at this sort of like kind of umbrella level, like a you know like we we're saying by university presidents, sort of transdisciplinary as well as like kind of within disciplines. And they kind of say like it doesn't have. So they go through like what kind of word or what kind of concept could this be? Um, Could it actually refer to something? And they kind of say, no, it doesn't.
1: Can I read a quote from them? Yes. So they say, a competitive requirement, perceived or real, for excellence, in combination with a lack of belief in the ability of assessors to detect false claims, leads to a conception of excellence as pure performance, a concept defined by what you can get away with claiming in order to suggest rather than actually accomplish excellence
0: yeah I, I found this to be such a humanities feeling paper. yeah, <laughs> when, yeah the, when, they use, when they' performing music. exactly that's yeah. exactly what performing excellence. I was like, oh god, this is I'm, I'm over at the Humanities Center watching a talk, but mm-hmm. no, but it was it was really interesting. I mean, I think there's actually uh, um, yeah, but so this idea that it's right, it's this thing that we perform rather than this kind of underlying attribute that we're what? observing
2: when I started reading the paper, like, so when I had read the title and maybe the abstract, um, I was anticipating that, that I wouldn't be that impressed with the paper because, so, I mean, I think that, uh, the idea that we've been like prioritizing the wrong things, um, in psychology generally or in social and personality psychology specifically, um, is like an important idea. And I'm, I agree with that idea. Um, but what i anticipated when i started reading this paper was just that um it was going to be like a semantic issue basically um that they were going to say that there's like something that they don't like about the word excellence and we should use a different word Um, and in fact they do suggest using a different word they suggest using the word soundness um and i thought that uh i would think that that argument was kind of hollow um but actually i think they make really good points about i guess the rhetoric that goes along with this idea of excellence and one of the points that they make that I thought was really interesting was and I think I think this is my favorite part about the paper is the idea that excellence is like a scarce um, commodity and so there can't be that many people who are excellent Um, and that's something that I hadn't really thought of like at first I thought okay they're gonna say we should stop emphasizing you know uh, anything that's like like really really good and I was I was thinking well okay um first of all that's unrealistic and second of all the only point of saying is that, that is because we've defined good in um a problematic way and you know until recently perhaps um but I think there is something about this idea of excellence that only a few people can be excellent um and to be good at our jobs is something that like only a, an elite few accomplish um and there's sort of like an element of sort of like talent in there um, which I think um, reminds me of this idea that only certain people are able to, like, run studies properly and stuff like that. Um, that really is part of the way that we're taught to be good at our jobs. Um, so I ended up liking it in the end.
0: Yeah, you know, there, there's this this idea... Right. This idea of the sort of the distribution of whatever you're after and that excellence kind of implicitly carries or maybe not so implicitly, but it carries this idea of like a distribution where, right, excellence is defined at the, the extremes or the end point where soundness can be, uh, you know, soundness can be like, you, it would be, it would sound weird and sort of like, you know, Lake Wobegon-ish to say everybody's excellent or almost everybody's excellent in my field or in my department mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it would, maybe not department if you're like bragging about your department, but you know what I mean? Everybody in my field is excellent or something, but it doesn't sound like it'd say everybody in my field is doing sound work, um, or almost everybody's doing sound work. So there, mm-hmm. there's this idea in there, I mean, I guess the, the, you know, the flip side of that is like, I, it feels, it feels like it's sort of putting the desired, this idea of like it should be a distribu this kind of distribution or that as a kind of a priori decision um, and I I don't know that I would want to like one way or the other whatever we're, we're going to decide we want bake in the idea that it has to be distributed one way or the other like it's not mm-hmm. it's not unreasonable for me to think that there could be an, a, you know some legitimate valid thing we want that is follows the Pareto principle that you know like you know of the good stuff comes from 10% of the producers or whatever. There are lots of places Mm -hmm. in the world that have that kind of distribution. Um, So it's not, it's not like a priori undesirable to me to say that. And so I'm, I, you know, I was sort of struggling with this, the the distribution argument, I wasn't sure. It it reminded me a little bit in a totally different domain of like, when you look at the Myers-Briggs, And a design principle of the Myers Briggs was that, you know, on these trait dimensions, that there shouldn't be a more and less desirable end. Um, And so, the Myers Briggs ends up going through all these like, you know, contortions to get dimensions that are equally desirable on both poles. Um, And it turns out, you know, when the Big Five were. Derived, There's like most of them, there's one end that's more socially desirable than the other. It's like, look, if this is how it comes out, this is how it comes out. Now, there's a whole deeper dialogue you can get into there, right? But it wasn't, that wasn't an a priori decision. It was like, well, okay, we're going to, you know, if that's what comes out, that's what comes out.
1: Yeah, and one part of their claim is an empirical claim that I don't, there's a little bit of evidence, but not a lot, which is that they make the claim that it's actually not a very valid uh, distinction to make to distinguish the very very excellent from everyone else. That there's actually a lot of noise in that. That um, that's not an area where we can make very sound judgments. But distinguishing what's solid from what's not is easier. It's a more valid judgment. And so that's why I think like in that quote that I read that one of the stipulations they made for this like problem with excellence is that there's a lack of belief in the ability of assessors to detect false claims or in other words are, there's a lot of noise and not a lot of signal in the judgment of who's excellent and who's not so their whole argument rests on that assumption that that we can't reliably distinguish the excellent from the very good or the good but we can reliably distinguish the good from the bad or the solid from the not solid and so the, the little bit of evidence that there is for these kinds of things are the few studies I've looked at, like reliability of grant review panel judgments or editorial judgments where like they send papers back out to, for review or for, for, to, to journals to make get editorial decisions, and they don't get the same decisions consistently um, for the same papers. But I don't think actually, we actually really know. I don't think we, there's not a ton of evidence of like those journals that only accept 2% or 5%. Would they... Except the same 2% or 5% if you redid the same assessment. Yeah. Um, but I'm sympathetic to the argument that those judgments are not at all reliable, that they're mostly noise. So that's why I guess I found their their argument pretty compelling that look, we can't distinguish the cream of the crop from everyone else very reliably, but we can distinguish what's solid from what's shoddy. So let's focus on that distinction.
0: Yeah, I what mean, if, I guess... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, i I'll, I'll
1: what
2: if excellence were redefined in a way where we were prioritizing like research methods and rigor and all of the things that we talk about all the time and excellence were defined as the people who are in the top 5% or 1% of those things that we think are valuable is that would that work better or is there something about the exclusionariness of like excellence that's problematic
1: i guess uh, if i think about when i'm a reviewer or editor but i think it's very relevant as a reviewer too. I'm not really necessarily looking for do they hit every single thing that I teach my undergrad research methods to do. Do they have a representative sample and they used behavioral observation when they're measuring a behavioral construct and blah blah blah. Because nobody ever does that. What I'm looking for is are there fatal flaws? Are there deal breakers? And if there are no deal breakers, I tend to lean towards yeah, this should get out there and people can see the limitations for what they are, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Because no single study is going to be perfect. So. I think that's why the soundness argument appealed to me. It's like, instead of looking for perfection, which I think that it's hard to weigh, well, okay, they didn't have a representative sample, but they did have a behavioral measure, and they did have a large mm-hmm. sample, or whatever. We can't really weigh those things that well, but we can tell when something is wrong, right? We can tell when it's like, you know, you drew this conclusion, and it's not supported by your evidence. So you interpreted this as a measure of X, and it's clearly not a measure of X. So I'm more sympath- I feel more confident as a reviewer in my judgments of, like, this is wrong, versus, like, this isn't perfect, but it's close it's this close to perfect. Right. So but that's
2: in a situation where you can accept like a reasonably high percentage of papers, right? So what if you were giving like an award for the best paper or something like that? Wait, you're like, saying should... that,
1: that a reasonably high percentage of papers <laughs> don't have a fatal flaw? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I guess I was saying that. <laughs> I'm so idealistic. Yeah, it's very, um, very rosy. Yeah, but what if you, what if you were giving out like an award, or if you were um, like saying that the paper was the best paper of the year, or something like that? Do, do we do we want to shy away from from I think, doing that? Which I think, I think is, there's an argument for doing that.
1: I think but. we need to admit when we're doing that that it has a lot to do with subjective preferences. Okay. and we do that even with hiring, right? We tell the people that we don't hire that it was a matter of fit. And that's probably very true a lot of the time, even more than we, we think we're saying that to let them down easy, but it's actually probably the truth that they were objectively just as good as there were, there were you know, probably 20 people that were objectively equally good. And the one we chose is because we like them better. We like their research better, but in a subjective kind of way, not in this objective, quantifiable, reliably measurable kind of way.
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things I struggle with, so, I mean, one, one issue, this sort of soundness versus excellence distinction, right? So part of their critique of excellence is they say it's this placeholder when you go across disciplines, um, you know, you can't compare, it's incommensurable, right, that, that you know, what constitutes excellence in sociology and psychology and biology and English and whatever, everybody has their own norms. Um I didn't see how soundness... So the way they talk about soundness is this kind of... uh, It's the process, right? Having a good process. And and so in in psychology or an empirical field, it would be the method. But I I didn't see how that was necessarily escaped that issue. Like, if we say we want soundness, well, what constitutes sound work in the English department and what constitutes sound work in psychology are are still going to have the same problem.
1: I Go ahead. I don't mean to like be super, I don't mean to defend it. I did like this paper, but I feel like I'm like defending it way more than I mean to. Like I I promise I don't have a relationship with any of the authors. Um, But so if you can consensually evaluate it within a field, then you solve that problem, right? So if, if the English. But we, we do that
0: with excellence too. No, we don't. I mean, that's,
1: that's, I don't think we do. I think we pretend that we do. We get two or three people to rate it, and if it's above a certain threshold, we pretend that that's a reliable measure, but it's not. But if it were the case that if you asked a bunch of English people to rate English work on soundness, and you asked a bunch of psychology people to rate psychology work on soundness, and they more or less agreed, then you'd have, okay, well, it has to pass the consensual judgment of your peers, which is what we think we're doing, but I don't think we are when we're evaluating excellence.
0: I guess I'm not, I'm not convinced that we would do better at that. I mean, it, it's an empirical question, yeah. right? So, so the sort of, you know, kind of the, you know, a way to think about, like, their idea of soundness, what would that actually look like is sort of like a registered reports model, yeah. right, where you're evaluating on the, you know, the methodology on is this like a well-posed question based on prior theory, like all those kinds of things. And I, I wouldn't assume that we would have higher agreement on that than we would on the sort of like the traditional where we see the results Mm -hmm. um, and decide that's excellent. Um, And maybe we would. It's not
1: just, uh, maybe that's just reading beyond what they said. But in my view, it's not just evaluating the process rather than the outcome that's part of it, but it's also lowering the bar. It's also saying, look, I'm not asking you to say what's the best, what's like super interesting and super important. So remove novelty and importance and subjective like interest level from it. Just tell me if there's anything wrong with it. So if we lowered the bar to, like, is there nothing major wrong with it? I, I Yeah, it's an empirical question. I think it would be really interesting to know. Would reviewers agree more if the bar was just there's nothing really wrong with it? I have no major objection to this.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, this uh, shout-out to Julia Rohrer and conditioning her conditioning on a Collider blog post, right? Like, some of this is, well... When you get to the ends of the distribution it's you're you're gonna have restricted range you're gonna have berkson's paradox you're gonna have all these things going on that judgments are gonna agree less and less about those finer distinctions that doesn't mean we shouldn't be making them that just mm-hmm. means it gets harder to make a one percent from 99 distinction than a f- top 50 from bottom 50 mm-hmm. um so i'm not sure that's a reason not to do it
2: yeah. right um, But so i mean the, the other t- thing is
0: like that the outcomes sorry oh the, the the outcome independent so the, the, I mean, this is what i struggle with right with like registered reports and this idea that we should be focusing on like sort of process and soundness and all this stuff is like if there's two papers that have equally good methods that before i knew the results you know i would have said they were equally well posed questions but one reports a cure for cancer and the other reports a failed attempt to cure cancer, <laughs> I'm going to like the cure for cancer more. And I, I can't escape like feeling like at some point you know, that shit matters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't know what to do about that.
2: I mean, I think that starts to be a, a, dis- a distinction between the outcome of a study and the methodology. And I don't think that has to be what we're talking about when we're distinguishing, like deciding about the 1% or 5% versus more of like a threshold model where we decide whether something has a flaw or doesn't have a flaw. Um, But I think there are multiple ways to decide whether the shift that the authors suggest is a a useful one. One is, yeah, you know, is one thing easier to evaluate than another, right? So is soundness easier to evaluate than excellence? Um, And like you say, Sanjay, I, I agree that just because something is more difficult to evaluate doesn't mean it's not useful to evaluate or it's not important. Um, but I think that is relevant because if people don't agree on excellence, but that's what everybody's striving for, um, Mm -hmm. then, you know, it starts to raise questions about like what our motivations are and what behaviors are incentivized and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know. I think that, um, yeah, we can ask whether it, whether it's easy to evaluate, but we can also ask what motivation it creates. Um, and I think people's behavior would be pretty different and I'm not convinced that it would be better or worse actually. Um, if they were striving for a bar of like, does it meet the robustness standard? If so, then I can move on as opposed to like, are we trying to, come up with the most excellent paper. And this is why I say that originally I was wary of this paper because I thought they were going to talk about um, just like how we've been misdefining excellence as, especially in social psychology, things that are really counterintuitive or um, really bizarre or, uh, yeah, just things that, like, that, that do um, conflict with things that are probably more rigorous and things that, you know it would be better science
0: yeah i mean i think uh, you know the, the one of the things i struggle with with this and with other things and i you know i feel like yeah we're sort of falling into like i'm critiquing and samin's defending so mm-hmm. i'm gonna try to say a couple defensible defending things about it uh one is i really liked they, they talk about like collaborative and team science and sort of that like you know It's more and more becoming the case to talk about, like, Human Genome Project and other sort of large, big science projects. And that, like, a way of actually accomplishing what a field wants to accomplish more and more is becoming, like, how you bring people together. And I think that's a really important point that, like, we've got this model of the, like, the lone genius running their lab, uh, um, the, the single PI... Um, and we sort of like, that person's a fucking genius, and so we're going to give them all the money and whatever. And, and it's like, that's, we're sort of, I feel like in, in a lot of the sciences, we're kind of running into the limits of what we can do with that. Um, you know, another thing that I think is just a really hard problem is, you know, when we when we anchor anything, whether it's excellence or soundness or anything else, when we anchor it on professional judgments i think there's a lot to recommend that i think there's i mean that's essentially what professions are is there are groups of experts that get together i think you know peer review has a lot going for it um uh but you know it can like a a discipline can become untethered from the real world and you're just like oh we're like you said you know we we've decided counterintuitive is uh is important and then we we actually decided that telling a story in a way that makes something sound counterintuitive. You know, the whole, like, you really thought this, but really it's that. Like, that that's what we value. And then it just becomes untethered from, like, is this actually mattering in real lives? But then the flip side of that is, like, you, when you start saying, okay, we're not going to rely on people's judgment, and you start going to metrics. Yeah. And that, like, blows everything up because the, the then people just optimize to the metrics and they don't... Uh, um, it's like a person that looks at that and goes, oh, this person's like salami slicing and this person's, you know, doing all these other things just so that they can optimize whatever H index or whatever other metric. So I don't don't know what the answer is, but I I don't sort of, I have, I guess, yeah, I think this paper is wrestling with that question in a really interesting way.
1: Yeah. So I was trying to think about what you said about, like, that you're not sure that there would be more consensus if we lower the threshold of the judgment. And this is just anecdotal, but play along. So... In my experiences on search committees, for example, I do feel like there's very good consensus about the bottom 20% versus the top something, 30%, I don't know. Um, I feel like, and, and it would be really interesting to say this empirically, but if we assume that's true, I think, you know, what Alexa was saying before, like, shouldn't we still have to choose somebody to hire, to give, if there's a single award, a single job, et cetera? I think what's useful about the distinction between soundness and excellence is to be aware when we're going from one to the other. So when we're in right. the world of there is consensual agreement, everybody agrees these candidates are below threshold, these candidates are above threshold, there's some gray area, but there's a lot of agreement, right? There's like large swaths of the pool that we agree are below thre- threshold and large swaths of the pool that we agree are above threshold. There we can talk about things relatively objectively and feel pretty confident that this is a, a like valid judgment. Then when we're within the pool of candidates that are above threshold, let's acknowledge that this is becoming subjective. This is becoming a matter of personal preference and that there's not consensus. And I think the value of that is then we can be more open to the idea of things like implicit bias creeping in and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I've been on search committees, like so I was on a search committee in philosophy at a different institution where there's not a lot of objective criteria. Often philosophers don't have publications when they go on the job market for the first time. And so much of the discussion in the search committee was about who seemed smart. And I was sitting there looking at them being like, are you fucking kidding me? Like (laughs) you're talking about who seems smart based on like a 20 minute interaction with them and their job talk. And guess who seems smart? The people who remind you of yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we could just acknowledge that when we're past the point where there's any consensus then it becomes a matter of personal preference, and then we have to worry about our. Bias. I mean, obviously, we have to worry about bias even when there is consensus, but even more so, I think, when we're in the realm of the gray area where there, where we're, there's no longer good agreement among judges. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Totally. And I, and I, I, I actually I don't disagree that like it's easier to make those judgments at a at a fifty percent threshold than a ninety ninth percentile threshold, right? Like, and I, I've seen that totally play out in search committees that I've been on. And, you know, I've, ones I've been on, the conversation has overtly shifted to we're now in the realm of we can't distinguish on the like first unrotated factor. Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, now we're going to start saying like, what do we want besides a good bad dimension? Mm -hmm. And I, I agree. Like, I think that's, I think when people hang on to their idea that they're distinguishing good bad that's where it opens yeah. up for them to just like load that right. with all their other considerations and try to argue them as excellence.
1: Yeah, so I I think I came around to agreeing that we shouldn't get rid of those judgments. I just think it's important to be self-aware when we're yeah. leaving one kind of judgment and making a different kind.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there was a quote that I liked, which is an, and actually not from the authors, but the authors are quoting Jack Stilgo, and they say, um, excellence tells us nothing about how important the science is and everything about Um, who decides so that was like another thing that I thought was really interesting about this paper was um, the idea that relying so heavily on something like excellence where there is so little consensus um, creates so much more room for implicit bias and for just preferring things that are familiar and fit with sort of your uh, schema for what you know a really eminent researcher is for instance yeah
0: yeah, I mean, I think the the diversity considerations are are so important, right? Because people just, you know, uh, this is where subjectivity is where diversity dies, right? <laughs> like people, yeah. when you know, people just want more people like themselves, and they, you know, some of it may be like bias, some of it may simply be expertise. I, I'm capable of recognize of making better distinctions. Among things in my area of expertise, and so so that you know, there are all kinds of ways where that you know starts to, to matter. But you you know, yeah, when once you push this, you just start sort of reproducing what you've got or what sort of fits your schema, your stereotype, whatever of what what this is supposed to be like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. So I don't know anything about the authors except the one I saw give a talk, um, but I thought it was interesting that a group of men authors were like sensitive to that issue i assume i'm inferring from their names i could
0: be wrong yeah no. so i mean not all men are sensitive to that issue is good, right? <laughs> <laughs> not all men <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean this is uh, this is a whole other topic right but the the i mean since you you brought up the sort of like it, it is interesting this group of men authors is sort of uh um I hadn't actually even sort of noticed on the author list that I hadn't sort of thought about the gender breakdown. That's really interesting. And this this brings up, like, it's, I think it's noteworthy because that often isn't what happens because people, you know, it's often left to women to bring up gender diversity. It's often left to racial and ethnic minorities to bring up, you know, diversity. It's left to LGBTQIA people. It's left to disabled people to bring it up. And, uh, um... Yeah, and that's it's like well, if they're if they're not in the room in the first place, yeah. there it's not going to come up, um, uh, and or or it's going to come up in a really shallow, you know, sort of poorly thought out way, right. and so it's kind of unusual for for people to be taking ownership of that in a in a sort of thoughtful way. Yeah,
1: I'm really curious about the status of these authors. Like, are they? People who are bucking the system, or and like it's... trying to, you know, topple the status quo, and they're not on top, or are they on top and taking a risk and saying these things? And
0: yeah.
1: One of the, so another quote from the paper is um, the local construction of excellence is inherently conservative, and maintaining its structures serves the interests of those who hold local power. So, I mean, I think they're they are doing something pretty radical in in writing a whole paper on this and going oh. around giving talks called "Excellence is Bullshit." Um, so I'm really curious what their experience has been and what risks they're taking doing that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are we good? Have we? I feel like we've we've really like we really. I I sort of like the like digging into a paper for a podcast episode. This was kind of fun. Yeah, um, I, I also like disagreeing with again. you guys. It's fun too. I know. I know. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> Alexa's over there crying. Well, cool. Um, so I, I think this kind of wraps us up for, uh, for this episode. So uh, if people are interested, if uh, you're checking us out, um, we are The Black Goat. You can find us on the interwebs at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Black Goat Pod. You can find us on Facebook at whatever you type into the search bar. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Sanjay Sarastava with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier, and uh, we'll see you next time.